Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the present time, uh, it's a sort of watershed, I think. Women are apparently liberated in many ways, but in fact and in practice, they're not. They're still discriminated against in many professional fields and in, often in very pernicious ways. I think the time has come when women have got to find self-respect and a full identity of their own. Hello and welcome to The Book Club with me, Kate Mason. And me, Jim Campbell. This week for the first Football Ramble Presents Book Club, we have another first joining us in the studio. A football writer so good, the late, great Hugh McElmoney went round proclaiming she could write most of Fleet Street under the table. Her byline in The Observer in 1973 caused baffled readers to write into the sports desk, is Julie a man's name like Hillary or Shirley? This week, Jim and I have been reading The Fleet Street Girls by Julie Welsh. who've been behind Villa's players still orderly and composed here's Nickel. oh yes yes this is the story of life on Fleet Street in the 1970s and 80s where Welsh became the first woman to know the thrill of being paid to attend a game of football purely to tell readers what she thought of it she recounts the privilege of summoning the latest Chelsea starlet or revered international for an interview but she also describes the, the, the distress she sometimes felt from being publicly derided just for entering this domain previously closed to women. She does it with wit and humour and also tells the stories of the other women of the time who are alongside her, trying to circumvent these barriers in the world that, that still exist today. We're so proud to say we have Julie Welsh with us in the Football Ramble studio today. Thank you for joining Jim and me. Oh, well, it's really exciting to be here because uh, Football Ramble is just so great and uh, I feel a bit of <laughs> a bit of an imposter, really. What am I doing here? Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, well, I mean, we all feel like that, don't we? So. <laughs> yeah, imposter syndrome, definitely that. something to be discussed yeah. in this context, I think. Um, yeah, we really... We're glad to have a chance to read the Fleet Street Girls, Julie. And I mean, I mentioned at the top that the the distress that people's kind of anger 
caused you in some of those early days uh, of writing. Um, what do you make of that looking back now? It was really, really only when I was writing The Fleet Street Girls that I started to relive how I actually felt, particularly the first two or three years, just about to walk into that press box every time. And I really felt this kind of fear. It was very stressy because I, I just knew that a lot of the press didn't want me there. You know, I was this invader in their cosy world. And however nice a lot of them were to me in the surface, I just felt, you know, like the thing from outer space. I mean, you know, yeah. like a kangaroo had hopped into the press box, <laughs> except they probably would have been nicer to a kangaroo. Sort of <laughs> so that's, it's just really sad to hear that, obviously. I mean, it isn't surprising knowing what we, what we know about attitude at the time, but sort of when you look back on that now, to, did anyone that was a colleague, because obviously, you know, you, you went on to work for, very successfully for a long, long time. So at some point you, you must have been accepted. But did it did it ever feel like that? Or did, or did that feeling that you had remain the whole way through it? Did you always have that kind of fight or flight fear going into the press rooms or did eventually it kind of die down? I suppose it took a few years, but by the time Sue Mott came to join me in the press box because she worked for the Sunday Times you know there was that thought oh god thank god there's another one of us you know <laughs> or that she can take some of the flack um, and I sort of felt this little competition oh I'd better be nicer than her you know so <laughs> <laughs> I became so I'd, I'd become the lesser of the two evils but I didn't really feel accepted I don't think till I started getting um, TV plays accepted and then I thought well you know, to hell with them. I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've done something other than be mm. Julie Welsh football reporter. Um, and by the time we came to make those glory, glory days, the film I wrote about uh, my childhood passion for Spurs that was uh, that came out in 1983. Not just a childhood passion, I, I hasten to add. Oh no, not at Absolutely all. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But, but that was that was the sort of um, it was for a. a um, a film on four series by David Putnam called First Love, and of course, you know, Spurs were my first love, really. Um, so by the time that, I, by the time I came to write that, you know, I, I I was much more confident because I'd kind of I sound like a football manager now. I'd kind of justified my inclusion, and I I've got to say too that not everybody was horrible to me. I mean, by by no means I had sort of there were a few of them who I've actually some some of them are no longer with us unfortunately but I've actually sort of thanked them posthumously at the mm. end of Fleet Street Girls just for being so nice to me I mean because there were some really nice men and um, for all my sort of fear and apprehension it was just so fantastic to do it a minute I found my place in the press box every Saturday because um, football only happened on a Saturday then <laughs> um, at, um, the minute the whistle went and I sat you know I'd got my notebook and I'd got my pen because there were no laptops or anything like that uh, I just kind of you know I forgot about all the fear then and um, because I was actually doing a job it was just that moment be of, of before before you jump off the diving board yeah. um, I can still remember how difficult it was and and in fact i because particularly in the first year or two um i did get a lot of trolling i got a lot of nice letters 
but a lot of, you know, there was a lot of nastiness as well. And I, I was acutely distressed about that mm. because I was very naive and, of course, I just thought everybody would love me and they didn't. <laughs> oh, well, someone who did love you was someone we actually spoke to uh, before talking to you today, James Mossop. Um, here's what he said about when you first turned up on the scene, if you like. When Julie first came on the, on the football reporting scene, I think some of us... Uh, not being um, anti-female or anything, it's, it just didn't seem right. And then, of course, uh, when we began to read her copy and meet her personally, and what a delightful person, an extremely talented girl she turned out to be. So I have nothing but um, admiration and praise for the way she got into the job and looked and conducted herself. And, um, well, it's, it's just she's been brilliant. And now, of course, she's brought out this book about the Fleet Street Girls, which is another stunner, an example of her, of her competence. No, I wasn't alone in this thought uh, that, that we just didn't see women or girls in the press box. Uh, it was a man's world. And, uh, and, I mean, obviously, we soon came to recognise what was happening. And, of course, now it's, it's seen that Julie was the forerunner of people like uh, uh, Alison Rudd and Vicky Orvis and Sue Mott and Louise Taylor. Lots of girls in the press boxes um, since then. So it's it's now a matter of fact, and um, it was an initial thing like, I don't know, girl, there were jobs that girls didn't do, mm. and perhaps some that men didn't do, but she proved us all, Julie proved us all wrong. You did prove them all wrong, but the thing we were talking about before, Jim and me, I think, was this strange idea of having to prove people wrong. Mm. How do you, yeah, how do you feel sort of reminiscing on that? Because to me, the idea that you were ultimately accepted seems sort of sexist in itself, you know, that anyone felt that it was their place that they could accept you into a space. You know, it's just, we all exist in a space, you know. We, and of course, people, people often say that, oh, it was a different time, it was a different generation, things were different back then. But, like, looking back on that, are you, like, do you think that's okay or does it still drive you mad? Um, no, it doesn't drive me mad because I sort of feel quite proud of myself. Yeah. <laughs> I actually kind of, you know nutted the brick wall <laughs> um it, it was it was um as you say it was a different time um I felt in in a way some of the time I felt quite quite special um other times I just used to get really quite angry because I thought look I'm as a divorced single mother I'm Got, I've got a mortgage. This is my job. I'm a serious writer. You know, I'm not, not an ornament or anything mm. like that. Um, please just leave me alone to do what I'm being paid to do. So, um, but I have a feeling in a way, you see, that that a lot of the, the, the attitude of male sports journalists then was that it was all a great lark. You know, it was this wonderful life and, and um, they could just, it was like a, a men's club in ways. Um, I mean, what a fantastic life. You got paid to watch all the best sport, not just football or anything like that. You know, you ate at all, all the best restaurants, you met all the sports stars. Um, and there there were vastly different attitudes to women. I mean, as Jimmy Mossop says, you know, women just didn't do that sort of job. Yeah, uh, that was quite true. You know, we were, we made the teas at the cricket club. You know, we were the secretaries. We looked after the men. And if you've got a brain, if you can write, and if you're a female, I mean, 
I don't know, it was frustrating in a way because I just used to think, well, bugger that. You know, I, I'm not going to spend my life making teas or, or running around after men who quite a lot of the time are, are sort of mediocre compared to me. Because <laughs> I, mean, I was very, I was very, very confident of my writing ability. I won't, I, I'm not perhaps, you know, my ability to be a journalist because actually I, I was quite shitty at that when I first started. But actually writing stuff... Uh, I could do that. I'd won a writing award. Um, you know, I was good. Um, and I, I, I just used to get really infuriated by it. And also, I mean, it was this fact that I did have a brain. Um, just because I didn't have a willy didn't mean that I couldn't follow a football game, which I could. Yeah. You know, I might have written about it in a different way, but that wasn't because I was a female. It was just because I was a writer, not a trained journalist. And these days, you know, you get a lot of um, writers of both sexes writing about sport, not in a trained way, and nobody gives mm. a toss. You know, it's what, it's what you bring to it. It's whether you're readable or not. And, um, well, I, I don't know. It was what the fantastic thing was um, about, I reckon it was this time last year, I was writing a piece about um, the Women's Football World Cup and I wrote it for The Guardian and I wrote something in it about how difficult it had been for me as a as a female intruder in this male world and i the comments on the guardian piece afterwards were just wonderful oh. they'd actually remembered me they remembered things i'd written um you know I, I, this was after a gap of what <laughs> i don't know nearly half a century or something and they could still repeat lines i'd wow. written and i just thought oh i'm so touched that was you know if i do nothing else at least somebody's remembered me Oh, yes, the impact, well, you know, personally, the impact that you've had on so many people in the industry is just huge. Um, we'd love to hear, we're going to talk more about this definitely, but we'd love to hear just more about this wild world of, of Fleet Street that you describe, because it's it's such a different life now being a journalist. I mean, talk about eating at the best restaurants, Jim. Yeah. I, um... <laughs> that, yeah, it seems like the sort of the, the, the media landscape has obviously changed so much in the kind of almost the status and social life that, that journalists had. There'll be, there'll be people listen, listening to this, this show now that have ambitions to be in journalism and think it's all very, very exciting. And, you know, I think, Kate, like our generation, we've, we've grown up knowing that Fleet Street was like a special thing and it was very different because Fleet Street now is just any street in London, isn't it? Any street in central London, you wouldn't know that there's anything that sets it apart. But it really comes across in the book how different it was and how the actual presses were there and when they were on the buildings would shake and how most of the newspapers were based there. So there was a huge, huge social life. But at the same time, you know, different people from different papers wouldn't go into different pubs. And it also seems like that regardless of the politics of the papers, you all knew each other and got on. And like, it sounds incredible. So it, uh, yeah, we'd just love to hear a bit, bit about it. Oh, well, looking back, I, <laughs> I mean, it was such, a, it was a heavenly place to work, but it was so debauched. <laughs> it really was. I, I spent, honestly, I've never been so pissed in all my life as when I worked in Fleet Street. I'm amazed I'm still alive. <laughs> I, I used to smoke between 40 and cigarettes a day. Um, I was famous for once drinking a quadruple vodka. Um, we all drank so much. It, it, we, we, you just never wanted to go home. It was heaven. And each paper had their own specific pub. 
And if you worked for another paper, you never went in there. But there were also these kind of neutral venues. And you'd always fetch up there at the end of the evening. There was this place called the Old Bell where, where, you know, women would throw wine at men who had sort of propositioned (laughs) them and men would get into fights. I once saw um, my darling, darling colleague, the late Hugh McIlvanny. I was just standing there quietly drinking my quadruple vodka or whatever it was. <laughs> and um, suddenly, like tumbleweed, Hugh McIlvanny and this bloke he'd got into a fight with just rolled across the floor in front of me uh, all the way to the entrance. Um, it, it was, uh, it, well, a completely different world. I mean, imagine that happening now. Two questions. Do you know what the fight was about, first of all? And second of all, what receptacle do you drink a quadruple vodka out of? Well, to answer the Second question first. Um, you just drink it out of a big glass, really. No, right, it's just a, a tumbler. Glass, really. well, remember, I, <clears throat> remember, I was a lady, so I didn't... Oh, like a little wine glass? I didn't drink out of a pint glass. Oh. No, it was just an ordinary drinking glass, you know. Oh, there it goes. I did have orange juice in it. Um, and what was the fight about? Well, Hugh was famous for getting into fights, um, <laughs> but whatever... What what they were about, we never really found out. He once got into a really notable fight with the author Norman Mailer. Oh wow! I mean, so he, he, you know, he he picked his fights out of a good good class. Um, <laughs> he, it was amazing. I mean, there were a lot of there there were a lot of sort of um, fights like that, physical fights, bitch fights um, with between the men, um, because it, of course. You know, particularly byline journalists, uh, huge male egos. Um, and I, when I was first in Fleet Street, of course, I was a secretary, not a not a writer, and it was all about managing male egos. Um, and if you were a secretary, you just sat there and sort of lapped it all up, and 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 um, you became an expert on on the male psyche, I think. And I think that helped me when I became a sports writer as well. It does sound like a sort of wild place. It's hard for us to imagine how work got done. Well, let let me describe the newsroom then. Um, When you arrived there in the morning... Um, it was sort of very untidy because there'd been lots. There'd be lots of paper and unemptied un- 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 ashtrays, and you know maybe the odd em- empty. And all the bottle. smoking, yeah, mm. yeah, because everybody just smoked. smoked. Yeah, um, but it was sort of quiet in the morning, and then gradually people would um, start arriving, and the the telex machines would start to clatter, and. Um, then people would sort of the phones would start ringing. I mean, there were about five million phones on ev- on every desk, and they weren't really desks; they were tables, long, long tables, and and um, you'd all sort of sit in a row. So it was a, a it, it was a bit like a refectory, really, or or you know the Last Supper layout, because um, <laughs> most of most of the time you kind of faced inward to where they uh, what was known as as the back bench was, which was the long table where all the big bugs sat. You know, the editor, the managing editor, the deputy editor, maybe uh, blah blah blah. But it was still quite quiet until uh, well, everybody would go out to the pub and then um, they'd come back and. Uh, it was magnificent, really, and I could never do this, but a lot of the men would come back from the pub after four hours. They'd sit down, type a piece, you know, totally coherent, and then their heads would sink into the typewriter. <laughs> or, you know, you'd get blokes falling off their chairs and things like that. In fact, my my my, my darling husband, I can remember him falling off his chair. Um, so it was just, that was all, just ordinary 
Fleet Street behaviour. I can't begin to tell you how wonderful it was. I mean, compared to office life now, I, I, mm, I, yeah. I, I if anybody asked me, should I go into journalism now? I'd say, oh, no, find something else to do. It's so insecure. It's so quiet. You know, it's so stressful. You never get to meet any of the people you're writing about. It's just not the same. Mm. I mean, you know, go, go and be a barista or something like that. You know, much more exciting and probably nicer surroundings. I mean, everything is so sanitised and clean. When I think of the sort of filth and squalor in which we, we work, um, I mean... The, uh, one of the um, <clears throat> journalists who uh, I interviewed for the book, this absolutely fabulous woman called Sue Peart, who, until she stepped down, was the editor of the Daily Mail U magazine for years and years. Uh, she started off at the uh, Daily Express and um, she said that they had mice, you know. Uh, they used to, the mice used to run all over the desks and things like that because, of course, you know, they were all these sort of half-eaten sausage rolls and, and, and sausage sandwiches and bacon sandwiches left, you know, for, for days and days on desks and things like that. Um, you can imagine, nobody, nobody ever drank sort of tea or coffee or anything like that. No, just oh, sorry, I feel like an idiot for having offered you a cup of tea yeah. when you arrived. We, we what are you listening to me in. like? Yeah. Oh, oh, a glass oh, of I, wine I, we I, were talking about. I, you know, I, uh, the last mm. time I had alcohol was when Spurs beat Arsenal 2-1. <laughs> sorry, yeah. I'm so sorry. Jim. Thoroughly, I, I thoroughly earned. <laughs> I, I had two glasses of wine and I had such a hangover. I mean, I just I don't <laughs> drink these days. I mean, I lead, I lead such a kind of drearily healthful life. I, 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 I do long distance events, walking and running. And, and you know, I, yesterday I had I was out in Greenwich Park with the the personal trainer looking oh, like wow. a twin doing these sort of incredibly painful Pilates exercises in full view. But, you know, my my life is so proper and dreary now compared to my lovely, lovely life in Fleet Street. You really get the sense of the from the book, though, that you, you're looking back at a, a period that was really fulfilling you know, it's, there's not there's not a sense of sort of mourning the good old days of just enjoying the memories, you know, and just really, really kind of um, just immersing yourself in in that incredible time that I guess we there's there's nothing comparable now, is there? And there probably won't be because, as you say, of the remote nature of journalism now and how it is very, very different. And also, people earn a lot less and and they they don't even necessarily meet their colleagues, especially with the way things are at the moment. And it, I almost feel like. I almost feel like I'm adding this to my list of places to visit if I ever find a time machine. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think you should. I'm, really, you should. But, I mean, it was it's not any Fleet Street itself. I mean, going to a football ground, that yes. really meant something. Mm. Oh, horrible, dangerous places, though they turned out to be. But, you know, I have these wonderful memories of... The, the, well, the first player I ever interviewed uh, was Tony Curry, um, Sheffield United up to Bramall Lane, this sort of really lovely young guy looking like a scared rabbit. <laughs> um, but, you know, this guy was, was an England international hero. And the second interview I did was with Norman Hunter, Bites Your Legs, the oh, darling late Norman Hunter who COVID got very early on. I was absolutely gutted. Just one of the nicest men I've ever met. I mean, he had such a terrible reputation as, you know, a real savage. And, and I, walked, I walked into... 
I, ra- I rang the club up. Can I speak to Norman Hunter, please? Oh, yeah, I'll just get him. Um, so he came in training and I fixed up to see him, went up to Ellen Road. There he was waiting in reception at Ellen Road. He'd just come off the training pitch and he had to track his tracky pants on and everything and he was clutching this can of, this tin of Johnson's baby powder and he was as good as gold. Oh, he was so lovely. And can you do that now? I mean, you know, it's just, I've just had this image flash into my mind, standing at a party next to Bobby Charlton, for instance. Um, It was just such a normal thing to socialise with players. And when did that stop? Well, I guess about 1985, something like that. Mm. And it was just a time that that, that, um, will never, ever be repeated. I mean, these people were just gods to me, but they were sort of human gods that have come down. And now, you know, they're, they, they're, they've all been media trained. They say such dreary things, <laughs> you know, you can never, ever get to know them. The way that um, you, can, you could ask them all sorts of questions then. I mean, uh, afternoon tea with Alan Ball and his wife in his, in his lovely home in, in, in Essex. Um, same Martin Peters and his, his lovely Mrs. Cathy. Um, I... You'd just meet, you know, you could stroll into a training ground. There'd be there'd, all these players, all these lovely, lovely players who you admired so much would be lined up for you to meet. Um, and uh, I, I went to interview, I'm trying to remember, I think it was probably a really nice young, not so successful Liverpool player called Phil Bursma. Now, this would have been all oh, kind of mid to late 70s. Um, but it ended up all of Liverpool first team. We had the, we, we went out to this sort of diner in, in Liverpool and uh, had very decorous lunch. And they all moaned to me about how awful Graham Souness was. <laughs> uh, um, and then <laughs> Phil Bursma gave me a lift back to the, to the station um, with Steve. Uh, highway and Brian Hall in the car and and oh, I was just lovely and you know Phil Borsma had this really crappy little car it was something like I don't know an Austin Seven or something like that um, never happens does it now no I mean if I phone up Arsenal and say can I talk to Hector Bellerin I want to have a scone with him, asking some questions. They just say, Jimmy, you've got to stop phoning. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that that access is not there in the same Please, way. Now, can you it? call the helpline? Yeah. Can you go away? To stop this. <laughs> stop tweeting Hector at us. Like it. Hector doesn't like Well, he, he probably just doesn't know, I guess, is, <laughs> is the reality of this. Yeah. I mean, we could, we're going to keep talking more about this. We need to just quickly get to a break and then we'll get back in the pub, I think. Until women are free, men won't be. When a man knows that his wife is economically independent, he can stand up for many more rights than he otherwise would be able to do. I'm quite content, and I think most of the women I know are quite content with the sex that they are. It's the circumstances in which those sexes are set that are wrong, but I'm all for variety, and the more variety, the better, and women are infinitely varied. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the book club with the Fleet Street Girls author, Julie Welsh, alongside Jim Campbell and me, Kate Mason. Now, we've spoken a fair bit about how segregated Fleet Street was, basically, by sex back in the 1970s, and even more so in the press boxes at football stadiums, where you, Julie, would always be the only woman. One thing I perhaps didn't fully understand when reading the Fleet Street Girls was something that's perhaps quite interesting in the context of conversations that are happening around football at the moment, around race and exclusion. And it's the way that women in the 1970s were restricted by using social constructs. They were restricted from entering into certain places. So conventions existed or were created, I should say, deliberately to enforce this. For instance, and this might seem like a small example, but it tells an important story. Elvino's, where all the journalists on Fleet Street would meet to drink, wouldn't allow women to enter through the front door or order at the bar. To try and understand a bit more of this, I asked your great friend, the former sports writer, Jimmy Mossop, how that even worked. Can you explain something to me, James, that I didn't fully understand uh, from the book? Elvino's, so if you were a, if you were female, you weren't allowed to order? Originally, yes, they weren't allowed to order. Uh, and the, the biggest one, the, the other the ridiculous one, was women. Even if they went in, they had to sit down, but they weren't allowed in wearing trousers either. <laughs> so, you know, and then, and then a girl, a, an old a girl called Anna Coote, and her friends stormed the barricades and marched in, and demanded to be served, and, and uh, that broke the barrier. And, and Elvino's had to relent. So can you explain that to me? Like, what's, what's the thinking there? So women weren't allowed to, what, pay for drinks? Well, the, or the ask... women, women knew that, they, that it wasn't for them. Elvina's was not for them. It's where, where the men went and lawyers went from the, from the law courts up the road. But they wanted to go. And I mean, some of them had partners. And they said, well, I'm sorry, you can't come. I'm going to drink so-and-so. I'm going to see so-and-so in Elvina's, but you can't come in. And then, of course, the women got together. I don't know how they got together, but they did. And Anna Coote led the revolt. And they all got together and marched in through the front door and said, no, so you can't serve us or whatever. I don't know what they actually said, but they, they had to be served and then they were, and they're allowed in. And now it's, it, well, as you know, it's a free for all. Now, why not? Why shouldn't it be? And what was your take on that at the time? What did you make of, of things changing like that? Well, I thought it was funny. I thought, oh, in fact, I said to myself, I thought, well, good for you girls. You know, things are there to be changed. And it was a bit stuffy. You know, I, I mean, we were in there one day, one of my colleagues he, he, he used a bad word, to be honest. And the, and the barman, the, well, the barman said, or the head head barman said, "Excuse me, sir, that is the language of the gutter, and the gutter is outside. So go out there." You know, it was so they were strict about so many things, and part of that the strictness was to do with women. Who and now it's just like a normal bar. So, as we've said, a different world and a different time. And of course, Jimmy found all this quite funny, as he says. But obviously, from my perspective now, and and for yours as well, I think, from reading the book, being excluded from stuff isn't that funny. 
Well, I think the problem is that, that or was, that, that men had no insight into what it was like to be kept out of things uh, because it just never happened to them. But I must say, I mean, the, um, in fact, the, the, inv the invasion of Elvino, um, actually between the first invasion and uh, actually women being allowed in there um, by the front doors, which is really what the Fleet Street Girls is about, you know, breaking down those doors, um, that it, it was about, I think, Something like 12 years went by between yes. the first invasion and um, Anna Coote and her and um, Tess Gill was the other journalist involved. Um, or I think I'm, I'm not sure what, whether Tess Gill was a journalist, but she was a very astute woman anyway. They actually took the matter to court and it went through several appeals. And in fact, um, I think the first appeal judges had to recuse themselves because they were members of Elvino and or regularly drank there or something. But eventually they got there. But of course, time had gone past and everybody had sort of... Nobody really wanted to drink at Elvino anymore because the, the wine was absolutely disgusting. Um, the loos were awful. And it was just sort of passe. And there was this lovely um, bar that had opened opposite called the Wine Press. And that's where everybody used to go. So it rather happened too late. But it was when the invasion actually happened, which I think was 1970, it was an absolute sensation at the time. And of course, you know, the, the, the blokes thought it was absolutely uproarious, you know, and went back and wrote all these pieces about the monstrous regiment of women and oh, stuff God. like that. <laughs> Um, oh, just just different times. But I mean, I was taken to Elvino, and I was very good. You know, I went went in the um, the side entrance as women had to do, uh, accompanied by a man. Uh, I wasn't wearing trousers, you know. I was, you know, wearing a frock. And I just thought, oh, this is wonderful. It's so quaint, you know, a, a, a quaint Fleet Street ritual. And also, there was this absolutely brilliant guy who. Um, resolutely set up court in the back room where all the women had to go. Uh, a guy called Philip Hope Wallace, who was the Guardian opera and theatre critic. And he was this very, very um, erudite gay guy. I mean, actually, he'd never have said gay and he would never have said guy. He was far too dignified for that. <laughs> he was really naughty and you know, wonderful and so learned and so mischievous. And we all used to sort of kneel at his feet because he was just so listenable. Um, so, in fact, it was, in, for me, it, it, was, it was no sweat, you know, having to sit in the back. Um, I, it was just, just a wonderful thing to do. But I, in the end, you know, you just got sort of so fed up with this, oh, these rumbly, smelly old blokes in the front going, war, 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 war. Um, <laughs> I mean, whatever. Um, Fleet Street just sort of humanised a lot. And I think it was because there were more of us women actually getting in there, writing serious and interesting and good stuff which wasn't about you know um how to knit a baby's bonnet and and you know uh, the best bargains in curtains and and what kitchen utensils you should be buying this spring and all that sort of crap which women traditionally had to write about if they became journalists i mean there was a huge kind of change which was um it was sort of a continuum. There was this wonderful journalist, Catherine Whitehorn, who um, worked for The Observer. Uh, 
I, I, for the first sort of eight years I worked there, I never dared speak to her because, you know, she sort of lived on Mount Olympus and I was just this sort of grubby little sports writer. Um, but she was marvellous and she was the writer, I think, along with Mary Stott of The Guardian, uh, who actually started nudging papers towards um, just, you know, 50% of the population were women and why shouldn't they be doing stuff um which wasn't about curtains and kitchens uh, kitchen utensils um uh so when i came along and started writing sport um a very very good writer hillary bonner who's also spoken to me in the fleet street girls she arrived in 1970 to work for the sun <clears throat> uh on a news desk she just sort of walked in you know the, the news desk full of drunken men so she actually had a really tough um initiation um you know, she got in there. Um, I don't know. There were just women who were starting to hold down executive roles. You know, they were bit from assistant editor to deputy editor. And by the end of the um, 80s, of course, two women had actually been editors, uh, Wendy Henry and Eve Pollard. Um, so, But some papers did kind of hold out and were very kind of... Um, sixth form minor public school common room players like uh, papers like i don't know the independent when it started were um they wouldn't have a woman's page you know they were far too serious and grand for that um the the attitude you know was so it's almost unfathomable isn't it you know when mm. you think of you, you now get men you know writing about their their health their families um, all that sort of stuff things that w women were meant to write about um 50 years ago. Uh, so it's become so much more de democratic and, and so much more human. And women can actually, uh, uh, we're allowed to write about serious stuff as well. Yeah. And also it opened the, the door for men to do that themselves because exactly. it's, you know, it was in the newspaper and the world didn't end. The, the other thing about The Guardian is that it's always a very sad event when I get commissioned to write for The Guardian because I, I'm, I'm the sort of one of their dead footballer correspondents. I write old bits about... Oh, their, oh no. Um, about, you know, who's died. And, and the awful thing is, you know, that more and more these days, they're, they're, they're the, the players that I interviewed when they weren't much older than me. And then I keep thinking, oh, God, you know, will I get an obit in The Guardian? <laughs> who's going to write it? Can I see it before it goes? No, it sounds from talking to you and from reading the book that for you, it's actually a lot about the, the personalities that you were meeting and, and the people you were getting to spend time with and some of these players you got to speak with and who were fascinating and managers uh, too. But do you have a, is there any particular memory you have of, of a game that sticks out to you or, or of an experience going to a particular stadium? I mean, perhaps White Hart Lane aside, where you think, that kind of captures how it felt to be someone who was there in that moment. Well, I guess, to be honest, it was my my first visit to Wembley, uh, the, which would have been 1973 when England lost to Poland and lost their World Cup place. But actually being in the press box at Wembley, it... Um, it was just, oh, it was just bliss, you know, heaven. I felt I've arrived. Um, and uh, the, the press box at Wembley was a bit more commodious than uh, press boxes at, at normal 
stadiums, you know, because it, um, there was, it was kind of three-tiered, I think, or two-tiered, and there were these sort of walkways in between, so you wouldn't have to sort of squeeze past these rows of blokes to get to your seat when you'd sort of have to clench your, clench your buttocks a bit so you didn't brush against them or anything like that. But you could actually stride between the rows. And I remember um, England actually kind of failing to beat Poland and there was this lovely, lovely um, Sunday Times reporter called Brian James um, who was actually taking it like, you know, some terrible tragedy. He was pacing up and down between the rows. I just remember that sort of stuff so well. It was, um, yeah. Uh, the other thing about Wembley, when you went to Wembley, um, the, the press got this sort of free bag of uh, food goodies at, at, to, to eat at um, at half time. And it was this sort of bag of a, a piece of fruitcake, a really disgusting sandwich and a bag of crisps. Oh, amazing. I, it sounds ah, like something off school trips. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was. It was real school trip food. You're absolutely right. But I was so thrilled. My goodness. <laughs> oh, and there, there were some sort of rather um, nondescript biscuits as well in one of those wrappings, you know, maybe a custard cream. Did, um, I, don't, I don't suppose penguins were available at that stage or well no the penguin was invented back then i mean sorry no just <laughs> but it sounds, it sounds like that would be one up from a custard cream no? oh yeah i mean penguin's just too shiny and expensive yeah. i mean Cho- if it's got chocolate on it that's yeah. probably next yeah, level no. of biscuit yeah, next level. i expect the, you know um the, the vip's got the penguins yeah you're probably right mm. has, has to be said and it was a period of time when people were there was this sense that hooli- that sometimes going to football games was was dangerous, and it, and in fact, in reality, it was dangerous. Not just because of some of the disasters that happened in and around that time you were reporting, um, because of you know stadiums not being quite fit for purpose or not having any kind of safety measures in place, and uh, people not kind of being tracked as well when they went into the stadiums as to how many people were were there. Well, did, did it would... feel dangerous to you? No. Actually, um, it felt a bit sort of chancy sometimes. Um, I think I probably recounted in the book itself that, that the only time I was really, really frightened was um, when I was going to report a Villa game. and um, to uh, I'd gone up by train and you access Villa Park um, by getting off at Witten Station and then there was this sort of very narrow kind of subway and the train had been very crowded and I, the crowds just sort of funneled into this subway. And it really, I mean, because I'm not very large and I was actually swept off the ground in this crowd and, and I thought, oh dear, this is not, this is not really very safe. Uh, but of course, when I, when I got out the other side, I thought, you know, I was just being hysterical. Um, but the other thing was... Um, <clears throat> but you weren't. You absolutely weren't. Yeah. Well, no, right. I, 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 it turns out I wasn't. Yeah. That's right. But I mean, you, you, you think you're immortal when, when you're 23. You really do. Um, there was this, I remember a Scotland-England game at Wembley and it was a very bad-tempered one. And I had this lovely Ford Capri at the time. Um, and there was a very angry Scottish supporter. And we, I, I was in my car 
and we got into some sort of altercation because I, I don't know why. But he actually, first of all, he unzipped his fly and, and you know, yeah. whatever at me. And then he tried to get into the car, but thank goodness the Capri had um, central locking. So, bing, close <laughs> and cosy electronic windows, give him a V sign and drive. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. my goodness, though. Um, I suppose that sort of thing happens even now, though. So you feel as though you didn't sense it so much or it's overplayed now because everything is so clean and tidy? And uh, I, I just think I was quite naive about um, the danger to football supporters because, of course, if you're in a press box, you've got your own little staircase. I mean, Arsenal was just wonderful at the old Highbury Stadium. Just one of it was the best stadium. The and the the press accommodation. They actually had this lovely press room with this sort of um, it was Highbury, of course, or you'd remember it was. It had lots of wood panelling, mm. and the um, press room had all this lovely wood panelling and this little sort of corner bar. Um, at half time, you'd get uh, chicken drumsticks and sausage rolls, and you know, nice food. And there was actually this sort of loo within the press. Um, Centre, uh, of course, it was a gents, and there was this really nice Daily Mail reporter, Jeff Powell, who actually is still alive and kicking and working, and he would stand guard outside the lav so that I could use it, which I thought was really nice. Um, so, as I say, you know, not not all of not all the reporters were dinosaurs by any means. Tell us about the lose in Tottenham in the new Tottenham Stadium, Julie. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> They're your lose. Oh, I have a loo. I... <laughs> Uh, well, actually, it started quite a long time ago, but Tottenham was the first to have a press room with a ladies' loo in it. Um, so, and I didn't really think about it at the time. Um, and then I, it was the uh, year of the, well, it was the 86 World Cup. Is that 86? Have I got my dates right? I want, you know, you get to my age, my mind wanders a bit. Um, anyway, I was promoting a book I'd, I'd done about the World Cup uh, on Terry Wogan's evening show and I, I started boasting that you know that thanks to me um Tot the Tottenham press room has got a ladies loo and 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 poor old Wogan he was absolutely horrified because I mentioned <laughs> you know the loo <laughs> but um you know uh Tottenham's new stadium I I can't think of the figures now I'd need to have my biography of Tottenham Hotspur in front of me but it's something like 471 toilets and a huge percentage of them are for women it says 84% in in Fleet Street girls you mentioned ah oh, well thank you <laughs> You're better at numbers than me. Yeah. <laughs> but there's in the media centre itself, which is just oh oh knockout gorgeous. Oh, 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 wonderful. And um that but there is this ladies loo. And when uh, I went to the opening night of the um of the, the, the stadium and uh one of there was only one other woman there in the media centre apart from me, which was a bit of a salutary experience. But um I, I I overheard a bloke saying, why is there a woman's loo in here? And the other bloke said, Julie Welsh. <laughs> yeah, I've got, if I do nothing else in life, what a legacy, eh? Yeah, that's great. It's absolutely wicked. I mean, I think this would probably be a good moment then to think about uh, that sense of legacy because you mentioned that there was only one other woman at this. So it was an event, was it, to launch the stadium? It was uh, uh, Spurs v Crystal Palace. Oh, it was a get the game, it right. They the launched PL game. Yeah, got it. Um, and so, of course, you know, as we've been talking, lots of things have, of course, changed in, you know, in football. 
I know I have plenty of friends who are female who work in the game um, and and you'll tend to see on for example on TV quite a lot more women presenting football even even female pundits all that Alex sort of stuff Scott is just great isn't she incredible yeah. and she's she's a really hard worker as well I did a podcast with her you know years ago and she was all, she was so on it she was so clearly like looking to um, make a go of this media career um so it's it's brilliant to see that but as you say there is in some ways there are still a lot fewer perhaps fewer women than you would have expected maybe making up these um particularly the writers on football i think it's it's a difficult one that because i i always i've always felt quite pleased that I was the one who opened the door for women to work in sport and in football in the, in that industry if I do nothing else in life but I think it's partly that it's the job every male wants and I think there is still a bias oh god it sounds so worthy doesn't it and, and no, depressing no, not but, at all. um and it is quite a difficult life and if you want work life balance and perhaps you know a woman wants children the reason really I, I stopped being becoming a football reporter um, was that um, I had, well, I, I could manage when I was a single parent with one, uh, one child, but then I got married again and I um, had one baby and, you know, to have to, to leave him on Saturdays um, to, I, I didn't want to travel anymore. And then, you know, I, I had an, another baby as well. And it just I just thought, why am I doing this now? You know, I've done what I want to do. Um, and maybe, I don't know, a, other women might disagree with me. And so a lot of the women I talked to in the book did have, you know, children and they kept on working. They had good childcare and stuff like that. Um, they, it didn't seem to affect them, but it was just the sort of demanding life of, of a football writer. So much travelling. It was so much less satisfactory, you know, in terms of getting access to players and people mm. like that. Mm. Um, I just thought, why would I? Why would I want to go, go on doing this, you know, when it had been so glorious and now it's just a bit sort of meh? But maybe that was just, you know, because I was, you know... Um, I was middle-aged almost and I couldn't be girl in the press box any longer <laughs> because, you know, I thought I'm going to be old. I, I, I was already older than the players I was interviewing and, and, you know, I was kind of older than one or two managers by then and I thought, this is terrible, you know, I can't can't keep doing my shtick um, girl in the press box any longer. And I thought, soon I'm going to be as old as the chairman and, and, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do this, you know. I, did, I didn't want to. And maybe it is, I don't know, this is such difficult ground to cover because other women might totally disagree with me. It was just, this was what I felt anyway. Yeah, it's so difficult because as you've seen and as you know better than anyone, the minute you're the one person of your gender, whether it's you're the only man or the only woman in a, in a room or in a, in a culture, if you like, you're speaking for everybody and it's no one really wants that, do they? Well, no, I mean, because, you know, a lot of, if, there, if a, a, a girl or a woman listening to this now might think, you know, what, what's she talking about? You know, bitter old bag. <laughs> I very, very strongly doubt that. And as we say, you know, there are still far fewer women, you know, writing on, on football and, and also 
crucially in the hierarchy, the kind of executive hierarchy of of, of various companies. But, you know, I, I spoke to Amy Lawrence this week. Uh, there you go, Jim, a bit of Arsenal for you. Um, <laughs> She's great. She, she, is, she is great. We've got we've to do the decent thing. Um, you know, and she referenced what a touch point you were for her and, and Ellie Aldroyd as well in the broadcasting side. So Great. Another, you're, another trooper as well. Yeah. You're, you're not wrong. Ellie and Amy. Amy she, they're, they're brilliant. They're just great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because as I said, it, it is a continuum and, and you know, you need very good people to carry it forward because otherwise, you know, the, 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 the flame just dies out. Um, and I think they've, they've inspired a lot of younger women um, as, you know, I, I, I sort of started off um, her generation in a way. Yeah, you did. You know, you, you absolutely did. It's, it is a continuous, yeah, it's a line of, of people all connected, I think. You said, as you're mentioning, this idea of carrying on reporting football, you say in the book that men can all carry on reporting football into their dotage. An old bag can't. It would feel kind of indecent. Do you still miss it? Um, yeah, I do. I really do. The last proper footballer I spoke to was Michael Dawson. Um, okay. A few years back, and he was just so nice. He was lovely, and I, you know, I miss that. I miss that access. He, uh, he was just great, and uh, he he was somebody also who 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 I'm sure he's had, he had media training, but he was also so sort of grounded and and down to earth and and honest and 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 um, yeah, one of my favourite Spurs players. Doors was and he's still he is still so Spurs. I don't know if you sort of watched him recently on 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 TV as a pundit, but you can tell he, you can tell his love of Spurs. But that I do miss that very much. Um, but it, you see, I the book is about a time which you can never have again. I guess God, how depressing. <laughs> yeah, you, you you have to take what you're given now, don't you? I guess. Uh, you, you kind of you worked in an era as well where, where obviously you did have that access and that you would meet huge huge people and you mentioned very briefly in the book that Brian Clough was actually godfather to uh, to one of your your kids so that's uh, how did that come about did you know him presumably you knew him very well that must have been uh, an experience well um, Lucas's father my husband um, comes from Nottingham and. Um, my husband was, you know, uh, he was a football and tennis writer. Um, used to go up to, he, he just chummed up with Clough and, and Clough took a shine to him. And, and also, be, I think Clough, um, terrible snob in a way. And because I'm quite posh, you know, he'd rather, <laughs> <laughs> he, he rather liked this. Um, and, uh I don't know. It was just a sort of family friendship. I I I loved Brian. He he, he used to sort of ring us late at night and things like that sometimes. And and um, his his wife Barbara was a really nice woman as well. Very, very she she was the one who did the proper sort of godparent thing. You know, she was the one who remembered the sort of Christmases and the, yeah. the birthdays and stuff like that. But it it was just such. It was a great thing. Um, I've got some lovely photos of. of, of Brian with uh, Lucas as a baby, which are terribly embarrassing, of course, for Lucas. Um, but 
Lucas did very well for good parents because one of his other good parents was um, the television, uh, film television critic Barry Norman. Wow. He was also a family friend. Um, I have to say, actually, these are much more my husband's friends than mine. Was my husband, you know, was much more sociable than me, and you know, much better at kind of getting <laughs> getting people to like him. But yeah, oh, I can't imagine that, Julie, really, having spent you know an hour <laughs> in your company. I, yeah, I were don't... you just in the corner with your quadruple vodka? <laughs> 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 Drinking it all in. (laughs) (laughs) Julie, thank you so much for coming in um, to talk to Jim and me for the book club. We really enjoyed having the chance to to read your book and to live this extraordinary time with you. And it's clear that uh, you're not just a great writer, but you're also a raconteur, whatever you might say about, you know, being your husband who's making all the relationships. (laughs) I can can hardly uh, believe that. And and thank you, you know, as well as, as I say, speaking about all of these other great women who work in the sports, you know, thanks for bringing us in, in a sense. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's just been so much fun. I don't want to go home now. <laughs> oh, well, we can. I mean, frankly, we can carry on if you want. Uh, we'll just make another one about something else, shall we? Shall we do the Tottenham Hotspur biography? Finally, Jim. Well, I haven't read it. So, <laughs> believe it or not. Amy's so. writing, isn't Amy writing the biography of Arsenal? Believe so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. If you got us in together, that would be fun. That would be fun. Oh, my goodness. I think it's breeding a whole new segment of, of, <laughs> the, of the Football Ramble book club. Uh, so Fleet Street Girls is out from Orion. You can buy it in most good places. If you prefer to have your books delivered, I quite like hive.co.uk. They give money towards your local bookshop when you buy from them. Uh, Spurs fans should also look up Julie's biography of Tottenham Hotspur, which sadly, yes, we didn't cover. But maybe another time, eh? Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the book club. Do get in touch on Twitter at Football Ramble or you can tweet me at KBL Mason with suggestions of books you'd like to see covered there. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Jim. Catch you next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.